0: This is Dan Vigella and you're listening to this special AI Futures series here in the AI and Business Podcast. This is episode 8 of 12 of our first series on AI governance. This has been one big experiment, and I want to give a big thank you to everybody who shared their thoughts on this series in terms of whether they want it as a separate podcast, whether they want different topics covered at emerj.com slash pod3. That's pod3, emerge.com slash pod3. It's literally two questions on a web form, very, very easy to fill out. Many of you have, and that feedback has been useful in terms of what we're going to do for future series. But this is episode eight, and we're, again, continuing our focus on AI governance. The goal here with this series, as I have mentioned all along is to stretch our listeners uh, imagination and knowledge of present implications and applications of AI which is really what we're best known for here at Emerge what's possible and what's working that's why people tune in that's why the United Nations asks us to give speeches that's why clients engage with us in terms of our market research work for enterprises. Uh, We want to stretch that forward into where is this taking us? Where is it taking us as an international community? Where is it going to take us as international enterprises? Where is it going to take us as leaders in terms of where we want to steer this wild technology over the course of the next decade or even more? And speaking of thinking even farther ahead than a decade, uh, our guest this week is an excellent person to help us do just that. Again, as we get farther and farther along in this series towards episode 12, we're going to be talking about farther and farther future concerns of AI as it gets more and more powerful. David Wood is our guest this week. He's the, among many things, the chair of the London Futurists. He's also the co-leader of the Transhumanist Party in the United Kingdom and the executive director of Transpolitica. He's also author of a book called Raft 2035, which is about creating flirt in a technological world in the future. And David is a person who is recommended to me by two other thinkers who I really respect. And so he got on my radar from people who I really like, and I happen to really like the way David thinks. He thinks in terms of practical phases, practical steps, and interim goals that will lead towards broader international collaboration around where these technologies are taking us. We cover a lot of topics in this interview. Namely, we discuss how to create bridges from near-term governance into long-term governance. We talk about the potential validity of existing international structures like the United Nations, like the World Bank, as well as some of the newer organizations that are moving into this space and what might happen with all the various organizations working away on AI ethics and similar matters. And we also get into um, what it looks like to steer technology at a national and international level. There is obviously no single top-down way to do this, but there are practical steps to move the needle and make things hopefully less dangerous and hopefully more conducive to human flourishing. And David breaks that down in, I think, very, very clear and concise language. And who doesn't like a really nice British accent? I mean, I'm kind of a sucker for that stuff myself. So David was a great guest to have with us. Grateful to have him as episode eight in this 12-part series on AI governance. And without further ado, Let's roll right in. This is David Wood here on our AI Futures series on the AI and Business Podcast. So David, uh, where I thought we'd start off here is around this broad topic of the governance of artificial intelligence. I think that there's concerns about even the near term around security privacy. There's longer term concerns about AI becoming more powerful. and People are thinking about should there be just regional sort of ways of governing these technologies or or is it sort of prudent to really think about global governance? Do you have a stance there or a way that you like to frame that problem?
1: I'm all in favor of some local experimentation. I think it's appropriate to have uh, some things trialed out. It's not obvious in advance that we can off the bat uh, first time get a complete system of regulation correct. So I'm in favor of different uh, parts of the globe, whether it's the EU, whether it's uh, America, whether it's China, uh, experimenting uh, with a view to seeing which rules make more sense, which rules are viable. However, it has to be as a stepping stone towards an envisioned global agreement, because people will naturally be loath to commit themselves to various restrictions nationally or locally if they perceive that competition is going to be able to work without these restrictions and get a potential advantage so we have to move in due course to international agreements too and that frightens many people People are fearful of the, any prospect of a global government. They feel that it's going to be totalitarian or inch towards totalitarian. But what I will say is that we already have examples of the global governance of uh, various things. We have uh, sports organizations which manage to reach agreement on how the soccer football world cup is played the olympics organization makes lots of agreements even though the constituent uh, nations have lots of different political viewpoints and lots of different makeup so there are examples of how useful agreements can be reached even between ideological opponents And that's what we have to build on
0: i like the idea of local experimentation it does indeed feel very hard to take a directly to the top, okay, world, here's the page we're going to be on in terms of how data is treated or what AI is allowed to do or not allowed to do, etc. How do you see that playing out in terms of sort of relative near-term thinking about, obviously, the EU is, they have their GDPR rules that are sort of coming out. Do you see new sort of waves of these rules emerging in different countries and then Some observation by the global community as to how are they shaking out? What are their implications for private sector innovation? What are their implications for human rights? What are their implications elsewhere? And then being able to use those as the experiments to build something more global? Exactly
1: right. And the GDPR in the EU is a very important case point. Most people have mixed views about the actual implementation. We often think, wow, this is clunky. This is uh, ham-fisted. This is poorly done. On the other hand, we have uh, sympathy towards what the rules are trying to do. And we say, yes, it is appropriate that there is the right to have an explanation. It's appropriate for people to understand how their data is being used and so on. So we can see that the intent is good uh, if maybe not uh, 100 percent in agreement but it's a starting point but it is not uh, something that's done once and then finished Uh, on the contrary it's part of what should be an ongoing sequence my learnings in the business world i spent 25 years in the mobile technology and smartphone industry that was an industry in which there was a great deal of rapid change, of uh, surprises, of a new entrance, of disappointments, of things going wrong and then things going overwhelmingly right. My key lesson from all of that is the importance of agility and flexibility. Of course, you can set the overall long-term direction, but you must uh, get to that overall target in stages, interim, milestones, and you must be ready to adjust your plan based on what you have learned and what new things have become clear that were less clear earlier on in that phase. So we will get there stage
0: by stage. Yeah. I think politics, the world of politics often seems almost like a domain where that iteration where in the private sector, let's say, is rampant and understood to be the only real game in town. Isn't the only real game in town in politics to some degree? Because experimenting with you know fifty counties in Wisconsin about how we're going to manage healthcare bills is like really hard to do and, and seems somewhat inviable. As opposed to well, there's some some big change for the whole state of the whole country, and it just kind of gets rolled out. Is there a way to sort of foster a greater degree of this experimentation? Because it feels like at least historically there have been limits to seeing politics as part of this iteration and learning. It's more of Just this clunking inevitability, it's its not seen as maybe the global community does not look to aggregate policy as a way for us all to learn and for us all to move forward. Is there a way to encourage that mindset and that learning like you saw in the private sector?
1: Well, one problem with politics is people rarely like to admit that they were wrong. They really like to have something uh, identified with them as being a failure. Whereas in business, more people are willing to shrug and say, yes, that uh, didn't work as I expected, and you know what? And now I'm wiser. And in business, we talk about failing, smart, failing fast, and failing forward. And it sounds like buzzwords, but all three of these things mean something particular. And failing forward in particular means that you don't try and move on quickly and uh, deny that you ever were associated with such an experiment. You say, well, here's what you've learned from it. And you use that as a starting point for the next round of experiments. But uh, politicians uh, like to present themselves. And we often as uh, voters like to see our politicians as a Superhuman and infallible figures, and we need to have a much more human understanding of how politics works. So that's one thing that will help. A second thing that will help is more of a coalition mentality rather than two different groups, one in the right and the other the left the republicans versus the democrats or whatever politics is in my view much healthier when there are multiple different parties involved and where it's quite easy for people to move from one party to another as their own uh, viewpoint changes and evolves over the time so sadly when there are two different uh, blocks that are very adversarial this uh, limits the ability to have a more meaningful and useful discussion it puts us into the wrong mental state as well it puts us into this tribal frame in which we often don't want to say something we think is true because it might be embarrassing for our side so instead we latch onto something that makes the other side look stupid Uh, even though we may not fully believe it. So it's a very bad way of having a proper discussion. So sometimes I talk about we need more than just democracy, we need a super democracy. We need to learn how to have these discussions in a way that uh, we're happy to admit that we've been wrong. We're happy to admit we've changed our mind. After all, to quote the economist John Maynard Keynes, though he may not actually have said this, when the facts change, I change my mind, dear boy. What do you do?
0: That seems like a a philosophically noble position and also an unlikely position for the masses writ large, but a vision I think everyone could, certainly here in America, I imagine you folks as well out there, would wish that there was a bit more willingness to converse. George Washington has had his own set of quotes about the pernicious effects of these dual parties, uh, wielding things out. In terms of altering human nature until we can get to brain-computer interface, at which point moral enhancement is its own topic, um, in terms of just structuring the system, you had talked about this coalition. I presume you know this doesn't involve counting on humanity to be more virtuous and open-minded writ large, which maybe there are ways to do that but would be harder. How do you see this, this sort of coalition structure as a paradigm shift um, in encouraging maybe these more nuanced views? So a couple of things to suggest
1: one experiment is in the field of citizens assemblies sometimes called citizens juries it's when people are selected more or less randomly to come in they are chosen to represent a diversity of opinion and they work together the same as on a legal jury and in legal juries if i'm not sure if you've ever had the privileged to serve on one or you've seen uh, examples on uh, drama and some of them are reasonably accurate, people do change their minds. They work together in a a period of uh, exploring different possibilities and eventually try to reach a consensus. So the same thing can be done in parts of the world in citizens' assemblies. There's some good examples that have happened in the Republic of Ireland. They seem to have applied them well to some very contentious topics such as what should the law change on the subject of abortion and on same-sex marriage? And the people who were involved started off with quite divergent views, but managed over a period of time to come up with something that they all felt, or many of them felt uh, more more comfortable with. So that's a way that uh, brings better angels of our human nature more to the surface, to quote another one of your presidents, Stephen Abraham Pinker, Lincoln. Yeah. Oh, well, okay, Stephen right, Baker, well, yeah, of course, that's his book. But the, Abraham the s- Lincoln. yep. yep. Yes.
0: Yes, I I think what else can we do but wield the better ones? It's going to be tough to to shake the tough ones. So, Okay, so limiting polarization might help us see political experimentation around AI as being iteration, not around being kind of concrete yes and no's or an inevitable rolling forward, but part of a global project to to, to feel out what's working here, what's working for making people happier, more prosperous, et cetera. You did frame this as if as if it would kind of, at least in the context of AI, lead to some kind of global governance. Did you mean that in the context of the inevitability over some period of time towards just overall global governance? Or did you imply that AI eventually will require a kind of global governance uh, structure, um, maybe it be the UN or some other sort of entity? In what context do you mean that inevitability?
1: well i think many of the problems we are facing as uh, human beings are so global in scale that they can't be tackled simply by small nations uh, each uh, trying to figure out the answer by themselves so if we look at the coronavirus as a very uh, contemporary issue this is not something that a single country can hope to control it has to be uh, a lot of cooperation with uh, different uh, countries there has to be sharing of uh, best practices and some agreements. Many of the other potential risks, of course, there's uh, nuclear weapons, there's prevention of the distribution of weapons of mass destruction. These are very serious existential risks. There are risks of the fragility of our collective infrastructure, whether it's from uh, external uh, interference. There was a solar discharge in 1859, sometimes called the Carrington incident, which uh, fried a lot of the fledgling uh, telegraph uh, communication systems of that time. Mm. If it had happened uh, today, it would have uh, cost, uh, people would say, trillions of dollars in damage. So what of the problems we face, and we haven't even yet mentioned in this discussion the problems of a poorly designed AI, or AI that uh, ends up causing more damage than good, uh, they all require a cooperation of some sort to address. I'm not saying that all decisions should go to the UN or the WHO, not at all. I'm very much in favor of what the EU EU used to call the principle of subsidiarity, which is you push as much autonomy and decision-making down to each group. You give as much autonomy as possible, but you have to recognize that there are some things that actually are far better resolved at a higher level of cooperation. And I would say also that the whole history of humanity has been figuring out ways to reach a better relationship between larger groups of people. We have instincts to compete. Uh, When there aren't frameworks that uh, constrain our cooperation and we always are suspicious of each other, we think, well, why should I pay my taxes if nobody else is paying their taxes? It doesn't make sense. And so we have the system of enforcing that taxes are paid and then we all benefit from that. So the whole history of humanity can be seen as solving one after another a whole series of prisoner's dilemmas, to use the language of game theory. And how do we solve these uh, prisoner's dilemmas? Only by having some kind of mechanism put in place to have some kind of trust that is, uh, for some period, uh, accepted and uh, will help people to be confident that actually they should pay their taxes or they should do whatever else is necessary to have this larger cooperation fruitful. These frameworks will not deny individuality. They should not divide, deny diversity. For me, the principles of diversity and principles of individuality must be paramount. But uh, we have to give some things up in order to have that a uh, possibility for diversity and individuality after at all.
0: At what point do you see a somewhat necessary? You know, as you had brought up, there are sort of. Non-provincial concerns. So we could talk about the, you know, the timely virus here. We could talk about global warming. We could talk about what have you. But there are non-provincial concerns, uh, and that artificial intelligence could fit the bill there in terms of the future of very powerful technologies. Everybody building their own strong AI in their own back offices or their own militaries may or may not end up being sort of super awesome. So I'm, I'm with you, and in, in terms of that general premise. Although I really do like this idea of local experimentation as being the starting point, beginning with ossified legislation globally just seems really, really tough. When do you see a required shift from what will be, you know, GDPR, maybe some some um, you know privacy laws around AI in the United States, maybe some? different ways that China decides to manage it, you know, a bunch of different countries doing different things. At what point do you believe in the development of the tech or or overall, do you think it'll be required for us to say, okay, t- time to pull together some global ideas here, time to think about what we learned on the aggregate and think about how we're all going to develop this technology without conflict? When does that confluence uh, have to happen, in your opinion?
1: Well, already too late in many ways, because these things uh, can break through much more quickly. The problems of uh, global warming, they're difficult to put a timescale on. Nobody's quite sure uh, how much time we have uh, before the climate starts spinning out of control. It's not even clear the climate will spin out of control, but uh, there are a whole range of scenarios ahead. And in some of these scenarios, the climate could change very quickly from where it is today to being many degrees hotter if we get into adverse positive feedback cycles, you know, with the buried, long buried uh, methane. Gases and whatnot, yeah. yeah. Gases, which might be released if the Siberian tundra heats up a little bit. And once they're released, then the Siberian tundra will heat up a lot. And then we move through five degrees of uh, average temperature in just 10 years. So we don't know how credible that scenario is. And people argue about it. And what we can say is that we should uh, assign it at least some probability. And therefore, we should be working harder, faster, quicker to figure out how we can uh, either avoid these scenarios or less credibly in my view how we could adapt to them. And so that needs to happen already. Now there are some encouraging steps that have taken place. I did like what happened in Asilomar back in January of uh, 2017 I think and there was a Puerto Rico conference there was a there was an Asilomar conference Uh, before that two years earlier there was a conference in Puerto Rico in January 2015 and I believe they had another one in January 2019 and there was a whole bunch of people from tech companies there were some economists there there were some uh, politicians there there were philosophers there were representatives of NGOs I think the main uh, movers and shakers were people like Max Tegmark, and who's just down the road from you, I think. Yeah. Uh, in MIT, people like Elon Musk providing some of the funding, people like Jan Talon, the original, one of the original engineers in Skype, and others. They managed to persuade uh, a lot of people to converge. And as a result of that, an organisation was created called Partnership on AI, which uh, in The Asilomar conference came up with 23 Asilomar principles for beneficial AI. And I think they have done some interesting and positive work. I think they may have gone off the boil a bit in the last year or two, and we could discuss why that's the case. But I still have a, a lot of hope for what the Partnership on AI could accomplish. And it's associated with organizations such as the Future of Life Institute, also at MIT, which looks not just at AI, but looks at a number of other issues, too, such Nuclear as... Nuclear and other things, yeah. Yes. Uh, they're also particularly hot on OWS, autonomous weapon systems, sometimes yep. called LAWS, lethal autonomous weapon yep, systems. Yep. So they are starting there. And to their credit, they've managed to build a reasonable collection of a companies, uh, organizations, including at least some from China, but not by no means all of the leading Chinese companies have taken place, taken part. So that's a start. Yeah. And uh, that's one way in which we could build things up. It's from new organizations that don't have a lot of legacy and are therefore freer and quicker to do new things. In parallel, I think some of the existing organizational structure that was put in place, the Bretton Wood Institutes like the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations itself, and then there are other groups like the WHO. Some of them are, probably will manage to reform themselves and keep up to date. Uh, it's difficult, there's a lot of legacy. And as you know, the older an organization gets, if it doesn't regularly reform itself, if it doesn't refactor itself, to use uh, an engineering term, then they can become uh, less effective. But uh, I don't uh, write them all off. So I'm expecting that out of uh, a combination of some reforms of existing organization and pressures from new organizations, such as Future of Life Institute, and I should mention the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford here in the UK, and there's quite a few others, Arguably, there's too many of them, but uh, again, there's an experimentation going on. There's going to be some consolidation. The ones that are successful, do really interesting work, will come to the top. And those that get bogged down in their own little power struggles or wrong turnings,
0: well, well, they'll probably be absorbed into the most successful ones. So maybe we can dive a little bit, David, into sort of... So we're, we're drawing a pretty clear line to the inevitableness of global governance of AI. I'm going to clarify one point there and then talk about this ecosystem that will bubble up to that in your opinion. When it comes to what would be required for global governance of of artificial intelligence, there's all sorts of ideas. There's ideas around kind of treaties where similar to the nuclear domain, we sort of check other nations, nations check other nations, maybe because it's hard to track an algorithm. We track something like compute resource use or whatever proxies we want to use for artificial intelligence and find some sort of Everybody checks themselves kind of ball game or checks each other kind of ball game. Um, that, that's one side of the coin. The really distant farther side of the coin is you know like maybe some artificial intelligence singleton that kind of manages uh, and, and maintains order across different nations with a, a really quite a firm set of rules uh, that, that hopefully keeps everybody happy but but also uh, really brooks those those conflict sort of incentives. There's obviously all sorts of gradients in between. When you think, uh, David, about let's just say who knows the next ten, twenty years, uh, what might be required for AI, where for you do you think we're going to have to slide? Some people say treaty and no farther. Um, others have other ideas. What are yours? Well, I think there's a
1: lot that can be done, uh, regards to AI uh, helping to monitor what's going on. I, I think. We can have this without that AI itself being particularly general intelligence. We can use simpler, more narrowly defined AI uh, to help monitor what's going on. So it won't yet be the singularity, but we can have systems in place that monitor and alert quickly when something strange is happening that deserves attention, needs more investigation. I sometimes talk about this as, Trustable monitoring or international trustable monitoring—it's where people agree for some kind of verification. I mean, I can quote another of the U.S. presidents here, Ronald Reagan, with his mm-hmm. phrase "trust but verify," yeah. which I think he claimed was a, a Russian uh, proverb. So you build up trust with a, uh, to the extent that you build personal relationships between different groups. You have treaties that you both sign with your very best signature and expensive pen, but then you need some mechanism to be checking too. And with AI, of course, it's very hard because nobody knows what's going on deep inside black boxes. But uh, I think we need uh, the best brains of uh, our planet to address this question. What would it mean to have useful, trustable monitoring? So we could be quite confident these narrow AIs were doing what we'd ask them to do. They don't have so much autonomy in them, but they could st- still uh, be very helpful. So that's what might happen with AI. Uh, In terms of treaties, we have to start. uh, We have to get some agreement on some things in place. It may be very simple basics, but uh, we can build up from there. And we can also do it by adapting other existing frameworks. I believe there's something called the Budapest Convention on Cyber Security.
0: Yeah, Stuart Russell was touting that, if I'm not mistaken, right?
1: this is, uh, spoiler alert ahead, this is Go one ahead. of the final ideas he comes up with in his uh, very interesting
0: book. Human Compatible. I forgot. That's what it's called.
1: Human Compatible. I've, got it. I've literally got, got it on the book.
0: shelf right over there, yeah. So yes, the, the nailed something.
1: So he has lots of good suggestions in this book, I have to say. Uh, I think that book will advance uh, considerably the global discussion on how to prevent AI from uh, doing things that we will deeply regret. But one of his thoughts in there is saying, well, this convention has gone through various iterations. Let's see what we can build from there, taking some of that as a starting point. So you, it's the same as in business. You get something that uh, works to an extent,
0: and then you see if you can do more with it. You began with, and those, who've, those folks who are tuned in or interested in the Budapest Convention can Google the term. I'm actually, I've heard that Drexler has been sort of taking a tack towards artificial intelligence. I have yet to read very much of his work in that domain, but you seem to think that it's, it's potentially worth reading. So I'm, I'm happy to dive into that as well. I'm not sure if he has read, written anything, actually.
1: All I know is from conversations with him and from some of his, his colleagues in Oxford. So. Got it. Okay, so there may not
0: be anything published there.
1: We'll oh, have to look right and see. Cool, an, cool. Yeah. Uh, an AI search will
0: answer that question. Yes, for yes, indeed. Yeah, Go- Google's uh, Google's present narrow AI will cut the mustard for that job. So um, you began by talking about some degree of transparency, using AI for transparency. I think you had said monitoring you know, I I often talk about the potential requirement for global transparency and also global steering, which is a bit more serious than transparency. Do you believe that it begins with transparency? In other words, step one for this kind of agreement, you know, we have these groups, uh, we have the Asilomar meeting where we get some ideas going. We have the partnership on AI, which is kind of a swing at these ideas. A lot of other groups are sort of popping up. Do you believe that kind of a net win near term objective? I know that you think in that way, having read some of your previous work. Do you think a near-term proxy here, an anchor point to get to as a species, would be some global transparency on sort of what's happening and where? And, and if so, what would that involve? I guess, what would we be able to see? What would we be monitoring for, in your in your opinion?
1: Well, uh, there's a number of things we have to keep track of. We have to keep track of uh, the likely breakthroughs that might get us to much more powerful AI more quickly than the conventional thinking assumes we have to have a list of possible ways in which these breakthroughs might happen. And for each of them, we probably should have some canaries. You know, the idea of a canary in the coal mine. Uh, In the bygone days, uh, we didn't have very good systems to monitor the quality of the air, so the miners took their canaries down underground. And when the canaries fell over, it was a good reason for the humans to get out quickly whilst they still had the ability. So we need to be looking at the possible mechanisms for breakthroughs. Uh, and I'm bear in mind here that what happened with a deep learning, by and large, caught most of the AI community by surprise. Yes. Because for a long time, it was viewed as not very promising. It was viewed as a minority interest. After all, this famous book by Marvin Minsky and a... Is collaborator uh, on Seymour uh, C- 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 Papert, the perceptrons book, which basically was thought to prove that uh, you couldn't do very complicated things with perceptrons at all. Uh, early ideas of neural networks and that helped to dissuade uh, the industry from getting involved and even when people like Jan LeCun did some interesting work in recognizing digits it was still felt to be minority and it was only in 2012 or so that unexpectedly uh, deep learning mechanisms turned out to be surprisingly effective in an increasing number of areas and and so some people to this day say it's not quite clear exactly why this works so well you know people some people say well it's obvious why it works so well and other people say as well there's mathematical questions over it anyway the point is that uh, we were To an extent, taken by surprise at quite how powerful and how good that was. In fact, if I go back and look at my own presentations, my own lectures that I was giving in 2010, 2011, I did not have deep learning in there as a trend to watch. You know, I said uh, in five years' time, we'll all be wearing Google Glass. Which turned out to be wrong because uh, Google Glass didn't break through. But uh, other things happened faster. So we need monitoring of I won't say deep learning now, because but there are me- there are possible new breakthroughs within deep learning, and there's other things that people are looking at. There's Judea Peril's uh, idea of a AI that understands causation. There's uh, still people trying to make Boltzmann machines work. There's new things that Jeff Hinton uh, talks about, uh, capsules as opposed to neurons. He's gone through various iterations of his capsule theories. That's what Ben Gertzel is doing with his network of a reasonably... Uh, individually competent, but not generally intelligent AIs, and if they can all network together, then an AGI might emerge from them. There's other people coming up with new ideas by studying the human brain more. We should be monitoring them in a kind of global framework so we can know whether we should be adjusting the consensus view when AGI might be happening. Yeah, because in- most people are able to say, oh, it's not going to happen for 50 years. Don't bother with your regulations. A lot of the businesses actually say like, that they do not want governments coming in and trampling over them with uh, heavy regulations. Yes, Because they fear that uh, any such regulations will be destructive and ill-informed. I, on the contrary, think that we need to know if it really is the case that we might have AGI within 10 or 15 years, I think there's uh, at least a 10% chance we will have that, by the way. So that should be understood more, uh, more widely. And we should be tracking possible breakthroughs more, uh, in, a, in a more global scale. And it shouldn't be something that people can just uh, dismiss as Hollywood fantasy.
0: On the contrary, we should be aware of what the possible lines of breakthroughs are. So breakthroughs is one. I presume part of transparency would also be so monitoring what the breakthroughs are. Of course, hey, we we could have a whole separate topic here on you know how do we get DARPA and how do we get you know the People's Liberation Army on the other side of the world to um, you know sort of spill the beans there. I mean that's that's some that's some uh, that's some tough stuff. I think it's pretty easy to crack open Microsoft compared to Baidu, but let's leave that on the side for now. Monitoring breakthroughs is important in your book and this first layer of global sort of coming together would be about transparency breakthroughs is one of those is also how it's being used part of that. In other words, do we think about some sort of set of human rights or how data is used from people or how it's monetized in some way, shape or form or what degree of autonomy AI has to make legal decisions or economic decisions? Are, Are there are some of those Factors played into what is transparency, or do you see this mostly about keeping tabs on the cutting edge of the tech alone? So, there is
1: this whole principle of explainability that uh, when an algorithm makes a decision, people should be able to say, Well, why? Why was I denied this loan? Why was I turned down for this job? Why was uh, this uh, position not made available to me? And so on. And it shouldn't just be, Well, the algorithm says no. That's not just, I say this not only because uh, people have a right to know, but uh, if we don't know ourselves, then it can be a very dangerous circumstance to be in. If we are trusting algorithms just because they seem to have a good track record, there's no reason for us to be able to do an induction, a principle of induction on that and say, well, it's got it right nine times in a row. It's bound to be right in the 10th time as well. Uh, It may well be that there's a different circumstance in the 10th time that the algorithm gets it horribly wrong so we have to push hard for systems that can be explained now sometimes people push back on this they say well many other uh, older systems we we don't understand why they work either there's much in medicine that works and we don't know why it works for a long time people didn't know why aspirin actually was effective at, as a painkiller uh, people still uh, ask questions about how uh, anesthetic works you know they've only got a, a certain level of understanding and confidence in that so but I say in all cases, we should be pushing hard to understand, because if we uh, if we don't understand how these systems work, we are missing out on, uh, first of all, maybe there's bigger opportunities to be taken advantage of once that understanding comes. And secondly, there are risks that we will end up in the scenario
0: of things going wrong after a long series of going right. So this feels to me like a different dimension. So we talk about this first layer of global governance after or hopefully along with, it sounds like you'd prefer that it begin now, after or hopefully along with local experimentation. I really do like the idea so that the OECD, we were, I was part of a launch of the OECD's AI policy observatory where they're trying to pull in all the different kinds of AI policy that are happening as well as data about how it's influencing different markets. Hopefully that will be a facilitation Mm. for what is this doing, where are we going? Um, I think they're a great organization to sort of start to anchor that conversation. So hopefully there are others that that share your belief there. But we begin this transparency as a layer on top of that, having to do with uh, technology breakthroughs. It sounds like we're also now leaning into values. So some of this transparency is who might be crossing the line of values. Is values another layer of transparency? You know, do you think that that can happen? off the bat, if there's enough Budapest-type meetings? Or or do you think that's going to have to evolve over quite some time to come up with a shared global set of here's what it could do, here's what it couldn't do, uh, faring for cultural differences? So one thing I'd like uh, humanity to work
1: on is an updated version of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So this was agreed in the years following the Second World War. It was a fascinating uh, process. People initially thought, well, you'll never get a sensible agreement after so many diverse uh, uh, contributors, but it was managed well, that process. People like Eleanor Roosevelt uh, had a good role. Uh, many other people from uh, different uh, traditions, uh, from India and others, uh, helped. And they came up with a document that uh, has stood the test of time as a useful uh, set of principles that most of the world has signed up to, although some countries uh, haven't quite uh, bought into all of it. Well, I think we should be revisiting this and figuring out, uh, again, what is it that we humans most value and most care about? I don't think we can get any progress with ethical AI until we have more confidence in our views on ethical humanity. After all, we want AI to do various things. We want it not to do various things. Why? It's because we humans care uh, uh, a not about various things. Along with this, I think we have to get a scorecard or a metric or a a new measurement to replace some of the existing measurements to figure out whether we're doing well or not as uh, countries. So a focus on GDP is understandable because it's something that uh, can be measured, but it's by no means the end. You know, the GDP is there as the means to allow people to do various other things. So we should be measuring something instead of the GDP and of course it's been a, it's been discussed for a long time that the gdp has shortcomings robert kennedy gave this marvelous speech in 1968 about it, how it the gdp fails to measure some of the most important things and much of what it does measure isn't that important various countries around the world are trying in different ways new zealand's uh, prime minister has uh, highlighted that uh, there should be more of a human uh, flourishing angle to many of the decisions of the government uh, we should progress that. It shouldn't just be a peripheral thing. It should be something that gets a lot of public attention. So instead of it just being uh, multiple groups discussing what a, the ethical system for AI should be, I would like more people looking again at what is the ethical system for humans. And we're not going to get total agreement. Of course, there should be lots of diversity. But that diversity is only sustainable within a certain
0: core set of values. Yeah, i, I- I do believe that the same, I've argued uh, somewhat vehemently, that uh, even sustainable development goals should potentially be updated to include some degree of this monitoring uh, and transparency of where technology is steering and taking us and whatnot. I think that those bigger uh, sort of bodies of work are certainly important, but as we're mentioning here, potentially require some degree of update. So we talk about transparency, there's where the technology is breaking through and what those consequences are. That's hard work, but, you know, useful. Uh, Second side of this is, is it being used in context where globally we're going to be able to get along? In other words, are there values being violated? Are there basic rules that we can all be on the same page about that nobody's going to step over? And, and, you know, AI is not going to be an exception to that. It sounds like this is a second transparency layer for you. At some point, it would seem as though, David, and you might disagree with this, uh, but at some point, it would seem as though transparency will lean to some degree towards steering. In other words, okay, we can see where all the tech is going. It would seem as though there is a next level where it's like we shouldn't humanity all go in different divergent paths for how to you know implant brain computer interfaces. We shouldn't all go in divergent paths in terms of how we build our military super a i systems and how we you know jack human beings into a i systems in some way, shape or form and kind of create this type of hybrid intelligence through whatever interfaces we can come up with that that on the aggregate. We're going to have to determine the trajectory of intelligence as a damn species so that it doesn't just turn into the state of nature. This is my supposition. I'm not going to call this a fact. Do you tend to agree with that notion, and do you see a way to begin that steering after that transparency comes about? Yes,
1: I do like the term steering. I frequently use the metaphor of steering. People have different approaches to what to do about technology. Some people put their head in the sands and say, well, it's not worth thinking about it. It's too complicated. Others say, my God, this is terrible. It's changing so much of what's valuable. Let's, and they want to slam on the brakes. Other people on the contrary say, you know, this technology is going to solve so many problems for us. It's going to help us to live forever. We, we need to get this as quickly as possible. Jam on the throttle, the accelerator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my argument is uh, we can't just be promiscuous with technology, nor can we shut it out. We have to do the steering. We have to sometimes put on the brakes, sometimes we have to accelerate, and sometimes we have to turn the corner and set a new direction. And this will mean uh, reaching agreements which constrain what people do. And it's something, even th- what we do on the road. I mean, it's constrained. Uh, we're not allowed to drive its beyond certain speeds. We're not allowed to drive without having a license. We're not allowed to drive if we've been in by being various uh, uh, substances, alcohol or drugs. And these are good laws. And uh, people have bought into them, you know. It, They deprive us of an element of freedom, but actually they give us more freedom because we can be more confident that when we drive, uh, other idiots on the road aren't going to plow into us and uh, do us damage. So we need some steering to come about, and gradually there has to be some agreements. And we have already agreements on, for example, air traffic control. All these airplanes fly all over the place, and there are agreements between different countries that constrain what these airplanes can do at different times, at least the, the passenger jets. The military ones are uh, a law unto themselves, but the, the, there is some agreements there too. So I'm very much in favor of step by step agreeing uh, constraints as well as uh, knowing what's going on. But there'll be constraints that everybody realizes and accepts. So long as everybody else signs up to them, it's good to follow them too where they will fail is if people worry that they will sign up to them, but they will be suckered by others who are breaking the laws, which is why you need the monitoring to allow the steering
0: to to work. 100%. Um, Do you believe, David, that it will have to or maybe inevitably get to a place where in addition to setting barriers, okay, we're not going to jack this kind of protocol into people's skulls until we understand its implications. Okay, we're not going to Build AI that can make these kinds of economic decisions just now, uh, because, you know, we've kind of have an international agreement. Do you think it will go beyond the sort of barriers to freedom to saying, as humanity, these might be the North Stars that we've decided we'll move towards? So these clusters of possibilities about brain computer interface and these clusters of possibilities about AGI, stronger AI, seem to be the ones that maybe a unified research effort should be creeping us towards versus these others that we've overtly agreed to as a species we are not going to move towards. Do you think that direction sharing, in addition to just setting up bumpers and barriers, will be a part of where this steering takes us, or do you see that as not good or not likely? I think it is useful if there is a
1: common sense of humanity that this is the tra- the trajectory that we're going to. This is something wonderful that we are building together. When Apollo 11 went to the moon or even before it, when Apollo 8 went round the moon and came back, it temporarily caused a lot of the tribalism on the Earth to be suspended and people looked up in wonder and awe and uh, people thought yeah it's great that we're going there it's it's amazing that we have footprints on the moon from uh, people from the earth and uh, i think it was bill anders one of the astronauts on uh, apollo 8 who subsequently said we went all the way to the moon and we discovered the earth more so uh, some uh, transcendent vision, which can be shared, I think, is important. And the first part of that transcendent vision, by the way, is that uh, humanity can do much better than at present. It's not a matter of trying to go back to some perceived past golden age. You know, it's not a matter of let's make uh, my country great again. It's more a matter of there's something better and uh, bigger which technology can allow us to do. You know, we can become much healthier than ever before, better than well. We can live much longer. We can have uh, ample, sustainable, renewable energy. We can have plenty of food on the planet if we change how we do agriculture. If we have a clean uh, lab-grown meat instead of meat grown from cows, it's much better for the environment. It's much better for land use and water use. It emits much less uh, greenhouse gas emissions and so on. So the vision I offer, and which I hope increasingly more people will sign up to. It's in my second last book. It's this sustainable super abundance in which I try and spell out things which I know make my people's minds boggle to start off with. But I'm hoping over time more and more people will say, yeah, this is where humanity is going. It's going into... An era of sustainable superabundance, not just more things, but higher qualities of experience, higher qualities of consciousness, more art, more recreation. It's a step up, almost similar to what happened when uh, mankind emerged millions of years ago from the apes. And I want more people to around the world to say, actually, this is a good and desirable thing, so long as we
0: are cognizant along the way of the potential risks and dangers. I'm right there with you. Uh, I do know that that's a stretch for many people to sort of consider an entirely different Domain of of sort of goodness of that we could sort of shoot for beyond those reference points that we already have. Now, final closing note, David, as we wrap up, you know, some of the folks that are listeners here are in the policy world, and I think maybe we've got some good inspiration for them, and and mentioned a couple instances that maybe could could serve as that inspiration. Uh, on the private sector side, you mentioned at the assimil- similar conference there were folks from from that domain as well. Obviously, partnership on AI is sort of built from these bigger private sector orgs, when you think about what the private sector could do to be a part of or should take into account to facilitate this sort of transition forward of a safer, better world with artificial intelligence, what is the role of the private sector in your opinion?
1: Well, I do think that there is going to become a change in the public mindset, And they are going to prioritize the companies that they believe are handling their data in an admirable way. That they are not uh, exploiting their data for nasty purposes or for entirely selfish purposes. So it's like... There was a while when technology companies were differentiated on the quality of the user interface, not just on who had the best architecture or the neatest uh, internal gubbins. Uh, the ones with the best object-oriented architecture or whatever, people chose technology based on how good the user interface was. And all companies therefore needed to get experts in design principles. Uh, and that, would, by the way, means many disciplines. Uh, you, there's not just one uh, design skill. There's multiple design skills that companies need to have on board to make a good job of that user interaction. I think in the same way, they will the companies will be differentiated in the not-too-distant future by which of them are evidently on the side of the users rather than on the side of the advertisers or on the side of other people to whom they are selling the data. So it's possible that Apple might benefit from this. Apple claim with some justification that they don't get so much money from the use of the data. They get their revenues from the hardware and other software services so it's possible that apple might convince people that actually they are the good guys in this although the other companies might change too we might see the demise of some companies like facebook if they are unable to shake off the perception that they are catering to advertisers more than actually serving the needs of the users I I mean, this is a hard stretch because Facebook is so well entrenched and everybody who's tried to build a competitor to Facebook has fallen far, far short. But it might be that there are some new companies or even organizations that emerge which do some of the things that Facebook currently does better and in a more transparent and evident way. And they then can uh, take some of the the footfall away from Facebook onto onto what? they do and this might then cause facebook to rethink and uh, put into practice some of the things they've said in the past but uh, don't seem to have actually become commercial priorities what i'm really talking about here is the subject of surveillance capitalism which is the thesis of shoshana zuboff amongst others Uh, I think, emeritus professor at Columbia, if I I remember that right, with a huge big book on surveillance capitalism, explaining that uh, most of these social media companies started off honestly wanting to just provide a great service to users, but they discovered that for their business needs, uh, they could uh, more effectively be successful by manipulating users to share more of their information and then, in due course, uh, allow advertisers, whether it's commercial advertisers or political advertisers, to feed back stuff to us that was specially tailored, taking away our autonomy in ways that we as users didn't understand. I think there's going to be a backlash against this. This thesis has started off slowly, but more people are writing about it too. There's another book called Don't Be Evil, And then crossed out, Uh, uh, it's written by uh, a person whose name I can't immediately remember. She is a former uh, writer for the Financial Times here in the UK, although she, I think, originally American. So there are more books on this. There's even the book called Zucked, uh, which is an account by Roger McCarney, who's one of the first investors in Facebook, a longtime advisor. So increasingly, people are going to be nervous about this and i think we have to have political pressures but also public pressures looking for let me use the word more transparency in how our data is used and if the private sector wants to get ahead of this trend they should invest very seriously and uh, honestly sincerely in uh, ensuring that they don't misuse uh, users data and don't allow repetition of what's happened in in the past election cycles with people having very sophisticated, personalized adverts uh, flying in their direction. And even if only, I don't know, 0.1% of people were influenced, it might have been sufficient to tip either the Brexit vote or the the vote in the 2016 US elections.
0: Yeah. So uh, it does seem as though there's going to be a competition around, to some degree, I I think it might begin with signaling, but already we see artificial intelligence brands differentiating. Based on, hey, we don't do X with the data or, you know, we're this kind of an application, but we don't keep this stuff. We have it here and here's how it's separated. Um, And so it, it seems as though thinking ardently about the future where people are going to be more sensitive about these things might be a real business model consideration, in your opinion, for making a better world and maybe a better company absolutely yeah fingers crossed that that note will be taken to heart in the private sector david i know we're up on time here but i'm glad we were able to have your ideas on the podcast so thanks so much for being with us it's
1: been a real pleasure you asked some great questions
0: so that's all for this episode of our ai futures series here on the show we're going to be heading into episode nine next saturday these last three episodes are going to have to do a lot more with strong artificial intelligence. As AI becomes vastly more capable, what is it going to look like to govern and to manage these technologies? We're going to be moving more and more in that direction in these final episodes. So if you're interested in the farther future, especially 11 and 12, you're going to want to stay tuned on the weekend. And lastly, if you would like what you're hearing here... Uh, in addition to our normal episodes on AI use cases and making the business case, which are Tuesday and Thursday, respectively, then be sure that you're following us on social. It's easy to find us at at EMERJ on Twitter or Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or Facebook. Get up to speed on all our latest podcast episodes. In addition to articles, infographics, reports, and more, pretty easy to find us at Emerge, and we'd love to have you follow along. We'd have a, a lot of growth in our Twitter channel and LinkedIn following since I started mentioning it on the podcast and glad to see that you guys are liking and engaging in our work. So if you dig what we do, make sure to follow us there. That's it for this episode. I'll catch you on Tuesday for our AI use case episode coming up next week and look forward to having you with us again.